We're going to be hearing from God through the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you can flip open your Bible to page 1165, we're at chapter 11. So that's page 1165, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please, put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you, free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Rachel Mary, thank you very much for, for reading. It's lovely to see you here today. My name's Nathan, and I'm one of the ministers here at Trinity. And I know a few people visiting, a few people um, new here today. There's, there's these little packs at the back. Uh, it's easy to miss them, um, but they give a little bit more information about uh, us as a church, kind of what's going on. So do you, I know the website sometimes does that for us, but if you're a kind of person that likes a, a hard copy, something to pick up, there's some of those at the back, uh, and you can find out a little bit more about what we are and what we're doing here as, as a church. Uh, But before we look at this bit of 2 Corinthians, I'm just going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at that passage that Rachel Mary read. Father, we just sung uh, a moment ago, teach us to open our eyes with truth to, to free us, light to chase the lies. Lord, we don't want to be people who are who are caught out, uh, not understanding your word or, or getting it wrong. Um, Lord, we know that's a temptation for every single one of us, and myself included. And so we want your spirit to guide us and lead us today. 
uh, and as a church, as we look at what the Bible says and, and seek to apply it to our lives and our situations. So Lord, would, would the lies be chased away? Would the truth um, set us free um, so that we see Jesus in the word? And we pray this in his name. Amen. Many of us um, here at, at Trinity will know Fiona and Theo. They were very kindly doing the welcoming today, and I've been at the church here for, for a few years. And Fiona works in investment management, and um, she, she has to deal in her job with, with kind of sensitive information, large amounts of money, that kind of thing. And I'm sure this is the case for other people here who work in, in the church as well. Uh, the, the IT teams in, in your companies or in your firms, they, they test the employees every now and then uh, by sending a phishing email. So the kind of phishing email, have you seen those fraudulent emails um, that they want you to kind of open, you know, open a link, click on this, and you think, okay, I'll click on it, or you know, give this sensitive information or account numbers and those kind of things. And that's pretty standard practice maybe in your firm as well, that they send out, the IT team will try and almost catch employees out um, just to see if they're being alert and kind of on it uh, with this private information. But Fiona said that the, uh, her IT team where she works sometimes have a bit of fun and they tailor it. So they, they, they use someone's name from the organization. And so you think, oh, it's fine. It's an email from dot, dot, dot. I oh, no. I very, oh, no. <laughs> it's all gone wrong. Or maybe they try and get you when you're on holiday or on a, on a day trip out from the office, off site, and, and you, you've got your guard down and you click on the link. And what happens then is that the, the COO of the, the organization or the company so, you know, I can imagine sort of coming to my office now and, and you're, you're slapped maybe on the wrist or, or, or worse uh, and say, look, you're dealing with large amounts of money, sensitive information, please don't do that again. And you sort of, sorry, sorry, sir, sorry, mess. And you, you walk out. You'll ask, ask Fiona later if she's ever fallen for that. I'm, I'm not going to say anything from the front on that at all. Uh, but maybe with, with your firm or in life with this kind of thing, you like to see yourself as, as being someone who's quite savvy with that kind of thing. You would never fall for a, for a phishing email, uh, a PPI text or call, you know, when they call you, or, or a con artist on Oxford Street. If you're new to London, you know, be, be aware. And you think, I would never, I'd never fall for anything like that. What about spiritually? Do you have your sort of spiritual antenna up, alert? Or is it down? Are you alert to to wrong teaching about Jesus. Or you're sort of a laid-back kind of person, maybe even a bit gullible sometimes with doctrine. Well, in this final chunk of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 to 13 that we're in, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this to the Christians there in Corinth, he is in full warning mode, okay? Uh, he's about to visit them, he says, quite soon, but he wants them to get some things sorted first before he gets there. Verse 1 uh, that tees things up really for next week is where Paul, he, he's going to launch next week into an ironic speech where he sort of mimics the, the false teachers who are operating in Corinth and, and their style. Uh, he's going to boast, not like they do in their strength, but, but actually boast in their, his weakness. But before he gets to that speech next week, he, he's got a couple of other things to tackle first, okay? Like a, a concerned parent... He's worried about the Corinthian church, particularly that they're falling for false teaching of other preachers who are kind of operating on the circuit 
uh, down in Corinth. And he needs to warn them to step away for their own safety, not to be gullible to this false teaching that's going on. Because way too much rests on this. That we might not be in uh, Corinth today, it's probably a little bit colder, particularly in this church, than it is in Corinth today. It might feel like a long way away, a long time ago, but, but as I've been looking at this, I'm, I'm 100% convinced that we too need to hear the full force of this warning that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. And so we're going to work through this passage and bring out just three things from it. First of all, then, the danger of spiritual deception. Look down with me at verse 2. Paul says, as he writes to them, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Two types of of jealousy. Then we're, we're more used to the kind of Uh, The first type, aren't we? Sinful jealousy. You know, I want that house or I want that person's promotion. We're kind of used to that language. Maybe slightly less used to the second type of jealousy, godly jealousy or or right jealousy for the will of God in a particular situation. But that's what's going on here. Why is he jealous? We'll look at the rest of verse 2. He says, I promised you, that's the Corinthians, to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. I know at at Trinity, uh, there's a couple of of weddings coming up, people getting married, or or people from Trinity uh, getting getting married elsewhere. And it's it's not always the case, is it? But traditionally, the father of the bride will will come down the church with his his precious daughter, and proudly he'll come down and, and pass his daughter over to a sort of hairy man at the front who, who, uh, who she's getting married to. And Paul is using that kind of wedding metaphor here, that he is like the father of the bride walking his, his precious daughter, the Corinthians, down the aisle on the wedding day. And do you remember that Paul has had a special relationship with the Corinthians? He was the first one to preach the gospel to them. These precious new believers, he, he taught them, he nurtured them, he protected them. But he wants them to know that he wasn't just in it for the sort of the early years, the toddler years, or, or even the teen years as they grow up. He, well, he's in it for the long game. He wants to present them, verse 2, pure on the wedding day as he presents these Corinthians to their husband, Jesus Christ. Some might hear that. It's a bit weird, particularly for blokes, I think, to think of ourselves as, as the bride and marrying Jesus. Sort of, you know, what's... What's that, what's that all about? Well, some will know that it's a rich biblical theme, actually. Throughout the Bible, you see this image of, of the wedding. So the Old Testament, Israel is described as the bride who's often unfaithful towards God. In the New Testament, Jesus' return, it's pictured as a wedding supper as Jesus, the, the bridegroom, marries the church that is the bride. And Paul, if you like, wants to be the father of the bride, handing over the Corinthians to Christ on that day and probably sitting there you know after they sit down and you, you often see that they're more relieved than anyone else at the wedding like I've done my one job you know I said I, I will or, you know that kind of thing see the purity of the Corinthians that he loved this church it is the top of his agenda but did you spot the danger in verse three I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He doesn't want them to be like the first bride in the Bible, Eve. Or indeed, like the bride Israel in the Old Testament, often deceived, led astray. 
Eve, you know, only mentioned twice, actually, in the New Testament. This is the first of those two mentions. And you remember she was deceived in the garden, as Adam was as well. But, but Eve is mentioned here that she was deceived, led astray. And, and it was subtle, wasn't it? It was cunning. It was attractive, what she was offered. And Paul is concerned that some of the Corinthians, well, their minds, particularly, he says in verse 3, will similarly be led astray from their devotion, sincere love and pure devotion to Jesus. If you, if you want to sort of go further with the, the wedding uh, metaphor, it's as if he's worried he's going to find a string of WhatsApp messages the night before the wedding from an ex-boyfriend. And verse 4 points to some real-life examples of what that danger can look like in Corinth. He says this in verse 4, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. As I've predicted this way, kind of want a few more details of exactly what that looks like this kind of false teaching we're not we're just not told but we do know that that this false teaching in Corinth it downplayed weakness any kind of suffering in the Christian life but more than that we see here that it's subtle isn't it it's deceptively close to the real thing all the buzzwords are being used Jesus spirit gospel it's a kind of you know you come into Christchurch Corinth five-star review on Google that they're saying the right kind of words and the right kind of things that we nod our head at but it's false and listen far from being just a sort of weird first century quirk that we can easily park to the side this kind of thing is alive and well in, in 21st century London today See, I think the threat to, to the purity of a, of a church is not necessarily from the, the militant atheists, you know, the sort of, I don't know, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or whoever you want to add to that list. The threat is not so much, we're told, from them or from obvious false teachers who sort of have, a, you know, their name written on the top of their, on, on their forehead. No, the threat is often, Paul says, subtle, cunning. Are the right words are used? Bible verses are quoted. Uh, the preacher's been to a, a brilliant Bible college or, a, or a, a named Bible college. And look, Paul doesn't name individuals here, and I, I don't think it's right for me to do that today. But I guess we can see sort of groupings where this thing, kind of thing happens. But I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, but the prosperity gospel, you know, the kind of health and wealth teaching that says, if you, if you give your money to this church... If you go for this money to God, your life will go brilliantly. No suffering, wealthy, no health problems. Everything will go brilliantly. Notice prosperity gospel, the word gospel's used, <laughs> but it's no gospel at all. Maybe we see this another way, a kind of Christianity that, that doesn't ever sort of talk about hell or, or judgment or those kind of things that Jesus seems to talk about quite a bit. Or a kind of religion where, okay, Jesus does the first bit, but then we need to sort of top it up by doing some kind of works righteousness ourselves. You know, Jesus, yeah, he, he died for us on the cross, we know that, but, but I need to do my bit as well to get, make sure I get to heaven. No, that's not the gospel. I guess we see some of that in groupings like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, perhaps today. This is what uh, one writer put about it uh, on the screen. 
He said this, as soon as Jesus Christ is not the sole basis for our salvation, as soon as our acceptability before God depends on something more than his sacrifice on the cross, we've denied the sufficiency of his person and work. At that point, the Jesus being preached is no longer the biblical Jesus, but an unreal product of human imagination, a relatively powerless figure who cannot effectively save his people from their sins unless they supplement his work with something of their own merit. I know that's a little bit long, but do you see what he's getting at there? A kind of Jesus that does half the work, but we need to do the rest. It's no Jesus at all. And in every century of the church in history, from Paul all the way to now, this kind of false teaching has been present. And so Paul says, don't be gullible to that. Don't be deceived by that. And this means for us that we, we want to hold on, don't we, to the true gospel. Be devoted to the true Jesus, as he's revealed in the Bible, the true spirit. I guess the sort of the ABCs of Christianity. Why? Well, because it takes us home to heaven, that wedding day, the banquet, with the wonderful Saviour Jesus Christ there to meet us. That's why it's important. I remember chatting uh, a few years ago to a guy who was, who was a minister of church who was about to retire, and I said to him, um, you know, you've, you've been at this for 30 plus years, you know, what do you find hardest about preaching every week? And he was quick as a flash, he said to me, he said, preaching the basics over and over again. And I sort of said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, so tempting when you've known a congregation for so many years, you think, oh yeah, they know that. Let me move on to something kind of a little bit niche or slightly different or shock people a little bit, something new. And he said he really felt that temptation, but what his flock, what the congregation needed was was sort of the ABCs, a teaching about sin and, and cross at the cross and grace and judgment. So it's possible to be deceived. And did you notice Paul isn't writing this to people who wouldn't call themselves Christians? He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to us. So it's tempting as we hear this to, to think of the person next to us, perhaps, or the person behind us, whatever it might be, and think, yeah, they need to hear this. They're, you know, they're, they're quite new Christian, or maybe they've not been around this no, 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 this is for us. Don't be gullible, be alert. Hold on to the truth, Paul would say. Second thing he goes on to then uh, is to talk really about the hallmarks of a true apostle. Here Paul sort of zooms out from the big picture into some specific uh, accusations that are being made against him. Did you see that in verse 5? I do not think, he says, I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, Paul isn't kind of being uh, driven by his ego or being a bit petty here. And he wants to put a, a big chasm and distance between himself as a true apostle and these false apostles or super apostles, as he calls them. It, that phrase is, by the way, just dripping in sarcasm as he says super apostles. And those were the ones that were deceiving the Corinthians. And his, his defense really centers around two accusations. First of all, that he was an untrained speaker. Look at verse 6. He says, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. 
Jeremy talked about this last time, verse 10 of chapter 10, that the Corinthians were saying that Paul was unimpressive, that his speaking amounted to nothing. And Corinth, you know, at the time, Corinth in the first century, it was a, it was a kind of city that, that loved show over substance, flair over facts. It was that kind of place. And some have taken this to, to, to see that, that Paul was a bit of a rubbish preacher, okay? You know, he was a bit average, not really great. I, I don't think we have to take that. I think you read his sermons in the book of Acts, and they're really powerful and persuasive. The key contrast here is that the super apostles were just full of hot air. But Paul had knowledge of the gospel, and they knew it. They, they knew he was the real deal. He had visited them. He had written letters to them. And again, I think there's a rub here for us as, as 21st century uh, Christians here in London. There's obvious comparisons. Uh, kind of in our culture at the moment, we, we, we love, don't we, sort of beautifully crafted YouTube videos, a production that matches Netflix standards, speakers who speak without notes. Don't, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm going to keep my notes. But we're impressed by that. Wow. You know, a speaker that didn't stumble and he spoke for, you know, 40 minutes and he had our attention. Wow, we say. And listen, none of those things are wrong. <laughs> those things can be really, really good. But I wonder if I could ask a question. What do we most look for in a preacher? Or, or how do you discern a sermon or some kind of Christian content, or a podcast or something on YouTube? Do we look for polished, uh, engaging communication, cutting-edge examples, funny even? Or are we more concerned for biblical truth centered on Jesus? Don't mishear me. It's not that it shouldn't be engaging. It's not a bad thing even to be funny sometimes. But, but what do we most look for? What do we want ringing in our ears on the bus home tonight? Is it, yeah, it's pretty good. I was entertained this afternoon. Or is it, yeah, I encountered God in his word, actually. If I can borrow an illustration. Um, Ruby, some of you might have seen her pottering around earlier today. One and a half she is. And, and if she gets a present for, you know, a, maybe a Christmas present or birthday present or something like that, um, she's still at that phase that, where she's more excited about the wrapping than, than what's inside. So, you know, particularly if it's shiny. I mean, maybe, maybe you are as well. You know, it's, it's gold, shiny, silver. Wow. You know, and much to the embarrassment of grandparents have sort of spent too much money on a gift and she doesn't care about the sort of the nice thing inside the paper oh she takes it everywhere and maybe that's the warning here with, with us we're, we're so impressed by these kind of flashy outward things that the substance the, the inside the real thing maybe we forget it might be for some that at some point you know, moving on from from trinity that sometimes happens in in the summer as people move uh, or, or you're here thinking about joining the church. You're, you're here today kind of checking, checking the church out. What are you most looking for, I wonder? I want to suggest, and, and Paul would say, somewhere that takes the Bible really seriously needs to be at the top of the list. So he was an untrained speaker. The, the second little accusation comes up that he was a free-of-charge preacher. Look at verse 7. He asked the question, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. 
And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Again, slightly frustrating, but we don't know why in Corinth Paul didn't take money. He didn't take a fee from his ministry in the city of Corinth. He didn't take a penny from them in all his time there. And probably stirred up by these super apostles, the Corinthians were taking issue with this. It was a proud culture, Corinth, and and they didn't like the fact that Paul did menial work to supplement what he was doing. So we know elsewhere that he did tent, he made tents. I've always sort of been really wanting more information on that. But he made tents to supplement his ministry. And, and they didn't like that because the super apostles or the traveling orators, they didn't work with their hands. Ooh, that was embarrassing in that culture. They found it a bit cringe, but, but also they were miffed that Paul didn't accept their support. Did he really love them? Was he really wanting to get sort of close with them as a church? And again, we need to know that Corinth was the kind of culture, the more famous the speaker was, the more they could demand for a fee. And so, again, this is pretty like us. I saw the other day, um, Theresa May, since she has not been prime minister, what, two, two and a half years ago, She's made over a million pounds in after-dinner speeches. It's quite a lot of money. And think about it even harder. When she stopped being Prime Minister, that's mostly during a lockdown where she doesn't even need to leave her front room to speak on Zoom, and she's made over a million pounds. We, we kind of get this. The, the bigger name or the bigger kind of personality or, or prestige, I guess, with Theresa May, the more she can charge. And presumably the super apostles here in Corinth, well, they were charging a serious fee for their preaching and their ministry. And Paul not charging anything. It's a bit embarrassing, Paul. It's worth just saying elsewhere, Paul did accept money. Uh, we're told that he robbed the church. He didn't actually rob the churches without them knowing. Uh, churches like Macedonia, who were poor, they gave money to his ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, you can look up later Paul says it's right that a minister is paid. Jeremy hasn't, hasn't told me to, to put that in in the sermon. Um, but as we said, we, we don't know why he didn't take a fee here in Corinth. Maybe he wanted to distance himself from the super apostles who were greedy. It certainly wasn't a lack of love, verse 11. He loved the Corinthians. But before he visited, he, he wanted the Corinthians to recognize the hallmarks of a true apostle compared to these spiritual con artists, the super apostles who are operating in Corinth. And it's them that takes up our, our last point as well, where Paul shows and, and unmasks, if you like, the true enemy. And it is in these final verses that, that the sort of heavyweight Tyson Fury blow comes in. Okay, the gloves are off, and he names these so-called super apostles for, for who they really are. In some of the strongest language, really, in the whole letter, verse 13. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. That these other preachers on the circuit, they weren't just rivals. They weren't, you know, slightly well-intentioned Christians that had got a few bits and bobs wrong. 
No, they're not Christians at all, Paul's saying. They weren't commissioned by Jesus. They certainly weren't preaching the true Jesus. They weren't, certainly weren't living like Jesus. And he wants them to have nothing to do with this grouping, these super apostles. But a bit like a, a TV series, maybe you watched Line of Duty a few months, I can't remember how long ago, a few months ago, Line of Duty or something like that, where you, you think you know, you think you've targeted the baddie in episode one, and then you watch, you know, the second episode, and you think, oh, maybe I'm not quite sure who the baddie is, and then you realize as the series goes on that it goes all the way to the top, the rot is there, really at the top, and you find out, you know, um, who H is, or what, if you've not watched Line of Duty, don't, that's all, that's all gone past, you don't worry, but the organization, right at the top, you see that actually that's where the real issue is. And verse 14 exposes and unmasks the actual enemy, the true enemy here. Did you see? No wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Maybe as you hear this, the, the mention of, of Satan or the devil kind of conjures up in your mind pitchforks and silly red sort of, you know, Halloween horns and those kind of things. You think, sorry, we don't believe in that here, do we, at this church? Well, no, not the cartoon version, but something and someone, a spiritual being far more serious than that. Jesus did as well. This is his words about Satan. He says in John 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar, the father of lies. Satan, then, is the, the arch-deceiver. He hates the gospel. He hates Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, we're told he prowls around like a roaring lion. And he stands behind all false teaching, the kind of teaching in verse 3 and 4 here in, in Corinth. See, very rarely will Satan directly sort of attack a church, but he will go through false teaching, through the leaders even. And it poisons the church. We see the false teaching. They might have a smile on their face. They might masquerade as, as something great. But when the mask slips, we see who they really are. And judgment will come, Paul says. Listen, as we hear this today, it's, I realize it's not the most cheery message, is it? On a Sunday afternoon of, of all the bits of the Bible. And it's right to be alarmed and, and, I think, disturbed by this kind of passage. If we're not, if we think that this kind of spiritual deception could never happen to you personally or could never happen to a, a church like Trinity Church Islington, Paul would say, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Be on guard. The lady behind me is, is Mrs. Hunter. Uh, you can say, don't be, don't fall for the smile. Okay, she was my head teacher um, at secondary school, Mrs. Hunter. And, and I really only remember two things about her as, as head's mistress. One was that she had a phenomenal ability to come into a room, any room, three times the size of this. And just by her sort of presence there, everyone went silent. Even at, even at a parents' evening, parents looked scared and nervous as she said, Good evening. And, and uh, it's something my dad was always very, very impressed by that. Um, but, but the other thing that I remember from her is, is a phrase that she, she seemed to often use. Zero tolerance. It's quite a good teacher word. I reckon Charlotte, my wife, probably used that at school. Zero tolerance, she said. And um, probably something to do with 
bad behaviour or wrong, someone was wearing the wrong coloured shoes or something like that at school. Zero tolerance, she said. And actually, when it comes to false gospel teaching, we need to hear Mrs Hunter here. Zero tolerance. Truth matters. The, the wedding day, eternal destiny, Paul would say, is at stake. And so let me just finish with this. As we hear this message and, and this warning, two dangers, two extremes, I guess, for us to avoid. I put names to them if this works for you. Um, we want to not be narrow nicks. Apologies if you're visiting and you're called Nick today. We, we don't want to be narrow nicks. Okay, Nick hears this kind of sermon, narrow Nick hears this, uh, and he thinks, brilliant. Okay, I'm going to go on a witch hunt for anyone who thinks any differently on any part of the Bible to me. And, you know, let's, uh, I don't know, view of, of baptism or, or how we as Christians uh, treat the Sabbath or, or what Bible translation. And anyone who's different than my opinion Oh, let's go on a witch hunt. Zero tolerance towards them. And, and Nick kind of has a few mates who think the same things. And, and then one of them thinks something slightly different on a, on a non-salvation issue. And, and the circle gets smaller and smaller until, oh, it's just Nick left. <laughs> there's, there's a call in the Bible for us to be generous, okay? Uh, even within Trinity, there will be secondary issues or non-salvation issues that we might disagree on, differ. Looking at the Bible... And there's a call to be generous. We're going to spend eternity, heaven, with people who have different opinions on some of these things. The second uh, kind of danger, and I guess this is more kind of relevant maybe in our society where we are at the moment, is to, be, is, is to not be tolerant Tamsins. Bear with me. Tolerant Tamsins. And um, Tam, Tamsin kind of listens to a podcast or something on YouTube and Christian, Christian thing, and she thinks, like, yeah, the speaker, yeah, they said a few random things, um, I guess, didn't strictly kind of use the Bible, that kind of thing, but, but they were really friendly, and, and I can know, it was kind of okay, um, you know, I guess, you know, there are probably differences with different religions and things like that, but can we just, we're basically all the same, can't we just kind of, oh, let's just all get along, <laughs> And of course, in our culture at the moment, that sounds really generous, sounds really warm. No one's going to get upset with the, the tolerant Tamsin. But actually, when it comes to the true Jesus, the true gospel, Paul would say, zero tolerance. Don't be gullible. I guess for some of us, we have friends who maybe we, we fear for in the same way that Paul was concerned that, that they've gone away from the true Jesus, true gospel. And it might be that not every time, but when we meet up with them, we, we every now and then just challenge them or ask them about those things when it comes to those specific salvation, first order issues. Because Paul would say eternity's at stake, that there's a great wedding. Jesus Christ, it, he's defeated the enemy, Satan, and we'll be with him on that last day. So let's keep that sincere and pure devotion to him until then. Let me pray that we would do that, and then James is going to come up and pray. Father, as I said, passages like this are maybe not on the, the top of our, our favorite verses or the kind of uh, Bible passages that we t return to regularly, but, but we trust that in your word, we, we need to hear this. That it's not just the Corinthians who were in danger, but but actually we can be as well. And I pray that you would keep our spiritual antennas up 
to this kind of teaching that maybe goes on and that we hear. Lord, I pray for, for, for me and Jeremy and others who teach here that we would want to be people who's, who stick close to your word and truth. And I really pray this, Lord, for your glory, that we would be there on that wedding day, pure, and because of Jesus Christ standing before him. And we pray this all in his precious name. Amen.